Good morning. If you can find your seats, if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 39. Exodus chapter 39. We'll be starting in verse 32. Exodus 39:32. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Starting in verse 32. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases. The covering of tan, ram skin and goat skin, and the veil of the screen. The ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat. The table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold, and its lamps with the lamps set and all its utensils, and the oil for the lamps, uh, the, for the light, uh, gold, golden altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar, and its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin, and its stand, the hanging of the court, its pillars, and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords, and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. And the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father, Lord, we come to you uh, this morning uh, as we Continue to walk through the book of Exodus, Lord, as we get close to the end, Lord, and get to this portion, Lord, of Exodus that seems repetitive to us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we understand that uh, this isn't wasted space in Scripture, that that this whole portion, these chapters that we're going to be covering today, Lord, may be repeating what we've seen already, Lord, but but that's because the, the tabernacle is just so important. It was important as you pointed your people, Lord, the Israelites, forward to the seed of the woman, the hope to come, Lord, your son, Jesus. It's important as we understand that that your holy presence will come down and dwell in this tabernacle and, and you will once again live with man and dwell with man on earth, that your desire, Lord, is to see uh, the recreation of the garden, Lord. God, I pray as we walk through these passages, Lord, that we see the symbolism and the importance and that we are in awe of how perfect your word is. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. We're going to be uh, covering a lot of ground this morning. I'm going to attempt to to preach on Exodus 35 through 39 in one sermon. I was very inspired last week as I saw Jesus preach through the entire Old Testament um, in the book of Luke. I was also inspired, just to warn you, by Paul, who preached the midnight. Um, so, 
for this reason, uh, um, we're, we're, we're going to cover in the tabernacle again. We, we have covered the tabernacle already, and that's why we're going to be going through this whole portion of Scripture quickly, um, because we covered it already in Exodus 25 through 31 pretty thoroughly. Uh, when God gave the instructions for the tabernacle to Moses. Moses was on the mountain with God, and he gave the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Uh, Exodus 35 through 39 is the account of Israel building the tabernacle. So in Exodus 35 through 31, Moses was giving the instructions. Uh, Exodus 35 through 39, what we'll be covering today is the building of the tabernacle. And, and pretty much it's, it's close to word for word the same. God gave the instructions, pretty, pretty much the difference is the Israelites did it. <laughs> they built it. Uh, but this is the historical account of the building of the tabernacle. Um, so I have three points this morning, and really these portions of scriptures divide up into three different parts. So the three points are the construction, the construction of the tabernacle. The second point, the second thing we're going to look at is the items within the tabernacle. And finally, we'll end with the priestly garments, the priestly garments, what the high priest wore as he uh, worked in the tabernacle. So let's start with the construction. If you would turn, you're in Exodus 39, if you would turn back to Exodus 35, uh, verse 4, this is the start of this portion that we're going to be covering today. Exodus 35, verse 4. This is going to be a review for most of us. If you're new and you didn't have a chance to walk through the tabernacle as we walk through, this is going to be a lot of information all at once, just to warn you. Um, Exodus 35, verse 4, if you would read along with me. It says this, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is generous in heart, Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring to the Lord contribution, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin and goat skin, acacia wood, oil for the lamp or for the light, uh, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast piece. Again. So Exodus 35, 4 through 29, this portion of scripture really is all about the materials used for the tabernacle. And for the most part, in the example that I just read, for the most part, it's all expensive material. Right? Expensive, costly, precious material. Gold, silver, purple, and scarlet yarn, which was really rare uh, back then. In antiquity, onyx stones, again, valuable and beautiful material, which leads to a question. It's a question that we've already answered, but an important question. Where did Israel get these precious material, this valuable material from? I mean, again, they're, they're a slave nation. They have been a slave nation for 400 years, and they were freed from slavery, but now they're a, a nation without a land, a nomadic people in the wilderness. Where did they get all this precious material from? Well, as we've seen, the answer is that they got this material from Egypt, the Egyptians. Remember Exodus 12, verse 36, it says this, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. In other words, the Egyptians just gave the Israelites, just gave the Israelites valuable material, their wealth. 
They gave him gold, silver, expensive linen. God put it on the hearts of the Egyptians to, to give Israel whatever they asked for. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Now, I just want you to think about that for a second. Because it's not often enemies will just give you all their wealth, right? This obviously was a miracle from God as God laid it on the hearts of the Egyptians just to give all their wealth to the Israelites. It was a a miracle, right? Clearly from God, meaning this was a gift from God to the Israelites as they were exiting and leaving Egypt. Now we get to Exodus 35, this portion of scripture that we're in, and God is asking the Israelites for a contribution, a donation of what he had given them already. Again, look at verse 5. It says this, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever, Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, and so on. I mean... Isn't that just such a beautiful picture of giving? Everything we have, everything we have has been given to us from God. So when we give, whenever we give to the church or wherever, we are just giving back what he's already given us. And listen, what's amazing about this in Exodus is that God didn't demand it from Israel. He said, whoever is of a generous heart. In fact, skip down to verse 29 real quick. Same chapter, verse 29, 35, verse 29. It says this, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord, for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. A free will offering, meaning it wasn't obligated. They were to give only what was on their hearts to give. Isn't that just beautiful? In fact, skip down to Exodus 36, verse 2. Exodus 36, verse 2. It says this. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman who... Um, in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to do the work. In other words, the men volunteered their time, their skills, their craftsmen, the gifts that God has given them, they volunteered their time. And God put in charge these two men, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Men volunteered their time, verse 3, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. Now listen to this. They, this is the people, they still kept bringing him, Moses, they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. In other words, they went to Moses and said, hey, they're bringing too much. (laughs) We don't know what to do with all this stuff. Look at verse 6. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people 
were restrained from bringing. They had to restrain them from bringing stuff, from giving. For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. I, again, I just want to pause and spend some time because that's just beautiful. It's beautiful. And take a moment to reflect on that because it's not often in the Old Testament that Israel is an example of what to do. That's just rare. But here, their generous hearts is, is just an example. And I, listen, I, I, our church is so generous, and um, I don't want to beat this drum too much. I'm, but it's just beautiful. The Israelites gave themselves to this work. They gave their wealth, their skill, their time and effort because they knew it all came from God in the first place. They were just stewards of the blessings God had bestowed on them in the first place, and they understood that. I think their heart was so stirred within them because of their sin and the grace of God, and, and in reaction to that grace, they were just ready to do whatever God asked of them at this moment. I mean, it doesn't last, we know that, but man, isn't it beautiful here. So this is how the tabernacle was constructed. This is where the materials came from. In fact, in Exodus 36, verse 8 through 38, they just give details of how everything was put together and constructed. I just want to point two things out from these verses. Uh, Look at verse 8, Exodus 36, verse 8. It says this, With all the materials that was given to the craftsmen, it says this in verse 8, And all the craftsmen among the the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains, ten large curtains. They were made with fine twine linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, uh, with cherubim skillfully worked within them. Cherubim are angels, if you don't know that. They're angels that seem to be closely related to the presence of God. If you look where cherubim are mentioned throughout Scripture, uh, they seem to be closely related to the presence of God. Meaning, when, when you walked into the tent portion of the tabernacle, you saw cherubim all over the walls and ceilings. This was a, a heavenly realm that you were walking into as you walked into the tent portion of the tabernacle. You were getting close to the presence of God as you see these cherubim. Now I want you to listen to this. Genesis 3.22, this is the garden. Just as after the fall of mankind within the garden, it says this, Genesis 3.22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden, he, he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden because of their sin to work the ground from which he had taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, he placed cherubim, right, these angels, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, a lot of us think of cherubim as like these little statues of babies with wings on their back, but that's not the cherubim of Scripture. These were angels that guarded the way back to the garden, to the presence of God with a flaming sword. Because of man's sin, God drove Adam out of the garden eastward. Couldn't be next to the presence of God. You know, in a sense, that was grace because God's holiness would have just destroyed Adam. And so he sent him out of the garden 
place cherubim to guard the way back east from the east side, westward to the presence of the Lord, the way back to the garden. Therefore, the cherubim, as you walked into the tent portion of the tabernacle, really connected the, the tabernacle to the garden. Right? We, we've seen all these different connections from the tabernacle to the garden. The cherubim are one of them, and they were a warning. And not only told you you're entering into a, a heavenly realm, but they were a warning. Be careful because you are coming near the presence of God. The cherubim guarded the presence of God with a flaming sword in Genesis 3. They were a warning. Let me point out one more thing before we move on past this portion. Look at verse 25, Exodus 36, verse 25. It says this, uh, For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, talking about the construction of the tabernacle, it says the second side is the north side. Look at verse 27, just two verses further. Verse 27 says, For the rear of the tabernacle, westward. Go a couple more verses. Look at verse 32. This is Exodus 36, verse 32. It says this. And five bars for the frames uh, of the other side of the tabernacle on the, and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. Now, we see that directions are, are put here, that there's a north side, the, the rear is the west side, meaning that there is a south side, and then there's a, the front would be the east side. And, and that's not un, super unusual for us, because if you ever built a building, you get plans, and you put the plans down, and the building's going to face a certain direction. So you can say the, the west side's going to be the front, the east side's going to be the back, or whatever you want to face the, the building a certain direction. The, the difference here is that the tabernacle is portable. It was a tent that was meant to be moved around. That means every single time the tabernacle was, was set up after Israel would move from one place to another, it always had to be set up a particular direction. The back was always west. The front was always east. The tabernacle faced a particular direction. Right? The, entrance, the entrance, again, was the east side, and you would enter and you would move westward towards the presence of God. This, again, connects the tabernacle to the garden. Right? Again, Genesis three twenty three says this, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man, drove out the man at the east, the east of the garden of Eden, and he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, just like the garden, the entrance to the tabernacle, just like the, the garden, the entrance to the garden was on the east side, and you would move westward to the presence of God. It's important to just see the connections of the tabernacle to the garden. The, the tabernacle is a recreation of the garden. And it's very clear uh, throughout the instructions and the construction of the tabernacle. So again, the first point this morning is the construction of the tabernacle. We see that costly materials were donated from the Israelites for the construction of the tabernacle. Skilled workmen donated their time and skill. Cherubim, or these angels, were, were stitched into the curtains and connecting the tabernacle to the garden, and you would move westward. The, the entrance was on the east, and you would move westward towards the presence of God. This brings me to the second point this morning, or second part of this portion of Scripture, is the items within the tabernacle. 
Exodus 37 through 38 is mostly about the items you would find within the tabernacle, these items that were very symbolic and taught the Israelites uh, a number of things. And, and the author of Exodus really talks about these items in a particular way. He starts with the most important item, the item that is, was closest to the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, right, in the Holy of Holies, and he moves outward from there. Now, I'm going to do something different. I want to do the exact opposite of that. I want to move from the outside and move towards the presence of God. This means I'm going to take the passage and and hear these uh, passages and kind of move them um, out of order. And I'm doing this on purpose because my goal is really to help us visualize the tabernacle. We've talked about it enough where you probably kind of have an idea of the different items within the tabernacle. But I want to walk as if we were walking through the tabernacle, entering from the east side, the east gate, right, into the courtyard and moving westward toward the presence of God, getting closer and closer and closer to the most important item, the Ark of the Covenant. So if you would turn to Exodus 38 now. Exodus 38. Exodus 38, verse 9 through 31, is all about the courtyard of the tabernacle. The courtyard is the outside portion of, of the tabernacle. There was an outside portion and there was a tent in the middle. The outside portion of the tabernacle was 45 feet by 150 feet, which is roughly, so you can visualize this, four tennis courts put together. That's how big the courtyard would have been for the tabernacle. And the boundaries of the courtyard were marked off by a large fence, probably about eight feet tall, meaning you couldn't just look inside to see what was going on in the courtyard of the tabernacle. The courtyard is where the average Israelite was allowed to go, both man, male and female. They were allowed to come inside the courtyard. Right? And you would enter from the east side of the courtyard, and the very first thing you saw was the first item I want to talk about. If you would look at verse 1, Exodus 38, verse 1. It says this, He made the altar of burnt offerings of acacia wood. This is the bronze altar. Again, the very first thing you would have been confronted with as you entered the courtyard. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on the four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze. Now, this is called the bronze altar because obviously the, the whole thing was overlaid in bronze. It was all bronze. In fact, everything in the courtyard, right, the outside portion where all the Israelites were allowed to go, everything in the courtyard was made out of bronze. It was a a less expensive metal than gold and silver. It was an earthly metal. And really, the courtyard represented an an earthly uh, uh, realm. This bronze altar, again, the first thing you would see as you enter the courtyard was the largest item in in the courtyard. In fact, the largest item that there is in the whole tabernacle was seven feet wide by seven feet long, meaning it was a perfect square, and four feet high. And again, it was the first thing you were confronted with as you entered the courtyard. The bronze altar is where sacrifices were made. And it would have been covered in blood. You would come in and make a sacrifice and you would sprinkle the blood on the altar before you would burn it. Meaning that the very first thing, you you walk into the the tabernacle, into the courtyard, the very first thing is you see this large altar covered in blood. 
The very first thing you are confronted with in the tabernacle, in the courtyard, is your sin. That you are a sinner. The bronze altar made that very clear. That you are a sinner and you need a substitute. As you move past the bronze altar, again, you enter from the east side. You're outside, it's the courtyard. You pass the bronze altar, still moving westward in the courtyard, still in the courtyard. The next item you would come across is the bronze basin, a basin of water where you would wash your hands. Look at verse 8, Exodus 38, verse 8. It says this, He made the bronze, or basin of bronze, and its stand of bronze. Again, this is a bronze basin. It's bronze, it's outside in the courtyard still. It's where the priests would wash their hands as they entered into the tent portion of the tabernacle. Therefore, the bronze basin was, was placed right in front of the entrance into the tent portion of the t- tabernacle. Now, everyone, all the Israelites were allowed in the courtyard, but only the priests were allowed to enter into the tent portion of the tabernacle. And the tent portion was broken up in, into two rooms. You have the holy place, that would be the first room you would enter into, and then the far west end, you would have the most holy place, or the holy of holies, which would be a separate room. As you move past the the bronze basin in the courtyard, you would enter into the tent, you would enter into the holy place, and everything within the holy place was made of gold. As you get closer to the presence of God, you see that the materials used become more costly, more precious more beautiful. The walls and the ceilings of the tent as you enter into the tent portion, the holy place, were made of gold and fine linen and had pictures of cherubim all over the ceilings and the walls. Right away you're confronted as you enter into this portion of the tabernacle that this is a heavenly realm. You have left the the earthly realm, the courtyard, and you have entered into the heavenly realm of the tabernacle, the tent portion of the tabernacle. To your left, as you enter into the tent portion, to your left, right, the south side, would have been the golden lampstand, the only source of light within the tent portion of the tabernacle. Now, I want you to listen to the description of the lampstand and, and hear what it sounds like. Look at, look at verse 18. This is uh, Exodus 37, verse 18. We're moving backwards. Exodus 37, verse 18. Listen to the description. It says this. And there were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower and one, on one branch, and three cups like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand... What's it sound like? It sounds like a tree. In fact, a flowering tree, we're here in Kern County, are familiar with almond trees. This is an almond tree. A flowering tree, meaning it, it has flowers on it that are budding, right? This is, this is an almond tree in, in the springtime, which is beautiful. It represents life. In fact, I didn't mention this when we went through it the first time, but it's, it, it was made out of 75 pounds of gold. So when we picture, at least when I picture the lampstand, I think of one that, that stands on a table, right? This was probably four to five feet tall. It was as big as a tree. <laughs> it was meant to look 
like a tree. Lampstand was a reminder or a metaphor that, that God is the source of life. Reminder, right? Remember, the, there's a connection between the garden and, and, and the tabernacle here. In Genesis, God gave life to creation. Everything that, that breathes, everything that's alive, God gave life to creation. He gave life to Adam and Eve, and then he put the, the tree of life right in the middle of the garden. Because God is a source of life. The lampstand was connected to the tree of life. It, is a reminder that God is a source of life, but, but it also produced light. I mean, that's what lampstands were meant to do, right? God is both, in other words, the source of life and the source of light. Now, here's a question, it's an important question. Where did this life and light shine? It, it filled the whole room up with light, but it, it, it shined a particular direction because listen to Exodus 25, verse 37. It says this, you shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall, uh, shall be set up so to give light on the space in front of it. Well, what was in front of the lampstand? Well, when you entered into the tent portion, again, you leave the, the courtyard, you enter into the tent portion. To your left was the lampstand. To your right, which was right in front of it, was a small golden table. Look at Exodus 37, verse 10. 37 verse 10. It says this. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. In other words, to your right, again, to your, to your left was the, the lamp stand. To your right was the small table. And, and on this table was bread. Exodus 25.30 says, You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. There is to be bread on this table all the time. There is to be lights shining constantly right from the lampstand. Unlike the pagan gods, the bread on this table wasn't for God to eat, just so you know. Right? The pagans, still to this day, will set up for their idols food to keep their idols happy because supposedly the idols eat the food, right? Our God does not need food to eat. <laughs> the bread wasn't for God. It, it, it was symbolic. In fact, in Leviticus 24, 5 through 6, it tells us that there was two piles. That's how there was to set the bread. Two piles of six pieces. What's that add up to? Twelve. Representing the twelve tribes of Israel. The bread was symbolic of God's people. In other words. Now, I want you to picture this. Again, you enter into the holy place. To your left, you have the lamp stand shining right in front of it. Right in front of it, to your right, is this table with 12 pieces of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. This symbolized that, that God's light and life was shining on God's people constantly. The lamp stand and the table was a reminder of God's grace on Israel. Now, as you move past these two items, still moving westward towards the presence of God, right in front of you would be the golden altar of incense. This is found in Exodus 37, 25 through 29. The golden altar is called that because it's made of gold. It's, it's very similar to the bronze altar. It looked like the bronze altar, but it was much smaller, made of gold, not bronze, and it was inside the tent. 
you would sacrifice and burn sacrifices on the bronze altar. In the golden altar, you would burn incense. You'd burn incense on the golden altar day and night. In fact, you'd burn the incense at the same time that the, the um, burning of the animals day and night would be happening on the bronze altar. The incense represented the prayers of God's people. The smoke from the incense would, would rise and, and rise up to the presence of God. Again, the presence of God would be on the other side of the, the curtain from the, the golden altar, meaning the smoke would fill and go up to the presence of God, representing God's, the, or, uh, the people of God's prayers going up and rising up to God. Now, west of the altar was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now, only the Israelites were allowed to go into the courtyard. Okay, men and women, all the Israelites, they were allowed to go in the courtyard, but, but only the priests were allowed to go in the holy place, the tent portion, the heavenly portion right, of the tabernacle. But only the high priest was allowed to go into the most holy place or the holy of holies and only once a year on the day of atonement. Behind the golden altar, again, was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the most holy place, and there was one last item, the most important item, the Ark of the Covenant. You would turn to Exodus 37, verse 1. We'll walk through this whole passage, or this whole portion, because it's such an important item. Exodus 37, verse 1. says this, uh, Bezal made the ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Now the word ark is an old English word, it just means chest or box, and that's a a very appropriate or good translation. Um, a, A cubit is 18 inches long, meaning this box, it was a chest, right, or box, was three and a half feet long by two and a half feet wide and high. Meaning, again, it was a rectangular box, so probably chest is the best way of picturing this. A, a chest that was three and a half feet by two and a quarter feet. Look at verse two, it says this. And he overlaid it with pure gold. Again, the, the material gets more and more costly and precious as you get closer to the presence of God with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on the other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings in the side of the ark to carry the ark because no human was allowed to touch the ark. It was holy, close to God's presence. They would have to carry this ark with these poles attached to the side of it. Verse 6. Verse 6, it says, And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. Now, <clears throat> the mercy seat was the lid of the ark. The term mercy seat, it's actually a little misleading because it's, it's not a seat like a chair 
or a throne. I know I've been confused about this in the past. I've always thought it was kind of like where God sat. (laughs) But that's not what seat means here. Instead, the word seat means more like location. In other words, it's where mercy is located. It's where mercy is seated. Therefore, I think maybe a better understanding would be atonement cover. It's the cover of this chest, the ark, and it's where atonement is found. Now we're going to come back to this, but look at verse 7. It says this, And he made two cherubim, again, these angels, two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherubim on one end and, and one cherubim on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat. He made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat and uh, with their wings and and with their faces to one another toward the mercy seat were their faces of the cherubim. And the Israelites, in other words, made two small statues that were put on top of uh, this chest, on the lid of the chest, these angels, and, and they were attached to the lid. These angels overshadowed the lid, in fact, uh, with their wings, again, angels with wings touching one another from one end to the other, and they faced downward. And this is because the throne of God was above them. They are bowing down in reverence as God's presence would be right above the Ark of the Covenant, which we get absolutely no description of. <laughs> it's just a mystery. Now, I do want you to think of the description of the ark because there's an important lesson here. We learn in Exodus 25 that the stone tablets that were given to Moses with all the laws on them, the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments on them, uh, were placed in the ark. And again, these represented the covenant, represented the laws of the covenant or the stipulations of the covenant. They were placed in the ark. God's throne was above the ark, meaning between God and Israel, where these tablets were placed, was the mercy seat. Again, above the ark was God's holy presence, his holy throne. In the ark was the law. Between God and the law was what was called the mercy seat, or again, what I call the atonement cover. Now listen, when Israel broke the law, It was the mercy seat that brought reconciliation between God and Israel. In Leviticus 16, once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, and sprinkle blood from a sacrifice on the mercy seat. Meaning, the ark's cover was used to make atonement for Israel's sins. It was the blood of a sacrifice that brought atonement, reconciliation between God and and God's people, Israel. And the mercy seat is where this happened. It's where it was seated or located. Therefore, the ark and its lid were the most important items within the tabernacle. Out of all the items, you walk from the entrance to the presence of God, the ark of the covenant was the most important item. So these are the items within the tabernacle. This brings me to my last point or part of this portion of scripture, the priestly garments. Priestly garments. If you would now turn to Exodus 39. Exodus 39, as you're turning there, this this whole chapter is about what the high priest would wear. 
again, I, I think we read through scripture and sometimes we get to these portions of, of scripture, a, a whole chapter on what the high priest would wear, his garments, and we go, what is this all about? Well, I spent a lot of time preaching on the priestly garments when we went through Exodus 28. There's just amazing symbolism throughout all of the tabernacle, but even in the the clothes that the high priest would wear as he would do his duties as the high priest. Just amazing symbolism. God truly was teaching Israel through the tabernacle, through through the symbolic uh, pieces of items, through the symbolism of the garments that Aaron would wear as a high priest. Let me just point out a few things, and there's so much we don't have time to to go through everything, but look at Exodus 39. Just look at verse 1. It says this. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, in other words, the the yarns that were used for the tabernacle, from those yarns, they, these are the skilled craftsmen that, that built the tabernacle, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. Listen to verse 2. He made the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. Let me just ask a question. What's that sound like? The tabernacle. The materials used for the tabernacle, but, but not, not the outside, right? Not the courtyard. The courtyard, all, all the items were made out of bronze. The, the outside of the tent portion of the tabernacle was animal skin. You, could, you couldn't see the, see the fine twine linen in the courtyard. This was the same stuff that was used for the inside of the tent portion, the heavenly realm of the tabernacle, the beautiful part of the tabernacle. In other words, the high priest's garments were made out of the same materials used in the tent portion of the tabernacle, which represented God's heavenly presence. Meaning, the garments that the high priest wore taught the Israelites a very important lesson, that the high priest represented God to the people. He represented God to the people. Just think about this. The high priest brought the inside of the tent outside to the people. As he walked around the courtyard performing his duties, he brought the inside of the tent outside of the people. Now remember, just remember how important the tabernacle would have been to the Israelites. You know, for how important it is for us as Christians as we go back and look at the tabernacle and look at all the symbolism and, and what it taught the Israelites. You just think of the Israelites, right? This building where the presence of God would, would be in. They would have known everything about it. They would have known about the lampstand. They would have known about the table. They would have known about the cherubim and the, and the purple uh, and, and, and scarlet yarn and everything that was made to make this inside portion of the tabernacle. This, this stuff that wasn't like... We get to see that all the time in our day and age, but the, that linen was so, so unusual to see. They knew all about it, but never got to see it. Only the priest was allowed to go inside the tent portion of the tabernacle. It was a mystery to them. They never got to see it until the high priest walked out of the heavenly realm into the earthly realm and walked around doing his duties, and then they got to see it. Only the priests that were allowed to see the inside portion of the tabernacle. But every time the high priest walked around the courtyard in his garments, 
he brought the glory and beauty of God to them. Now, this is obviously symbolic because no clothes could ever truly reflect the glory of God. But this taught the Israelites a very important and powerful lesson. It taught that the high priest was the go-between. The go-between between God and man. In other words, just like Moses has been in the book of Exodus, the go-between, Aaron and his sons for generations to come will become the go-between between God and Israel. The high priest represented God to the people. When Israel saw the high priest's garments, they saw the inside of the tabernacle, the heavenly realm, the throne room of God, the presence of God. The, the high priest brought the glory of God to the people. But that's not all he did. Look at verse 6, Exodus 39, verse 6. They made the onyx stones, this is verse 6, they made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engraving of a signet uh, according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod uh, to, to be the stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. In other words, the names of the tribes of Israel were engraved in stones and then they were placed on the high priest's shoulders. Not only that, look at verse 14. In Exodus 39, verse 14, it says this, They were twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets and each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. And they made on, or, and they made on the breastpiece Twine, uh, twine chains like cords with uh, pure gold. In other words, the, the breast piece that the high priest wore had 12 uh, precious stones on them, four rows of three, 12 precious stones with the 12 tribes of Israel's names engraved on them. This means every time the high priest entered the holy place and, and then entered the most holy place, every single time he carried the Israelites' names both on his shoulders and the Israelite's name on his breast, close to his heart. J. Uh, McKay, the theologian, writes this, as well as having the names of the tribes on his shoulders, perhaps uh, implying bearing the burden of their guilt, Aaron was also to have the names over his heart, implying that they were constantly in his thoughts, when he came into the Lord's presence, he was there to represent the nation and to act on their interests before God. The high priests represented, in other words, God to the people when he entered into the tabernacle. Or represented the people before God when he entered into the tabernacle. Meaning, the high priest will become the go-between between God and the people, just like Is or Moses was, as we've seen over and over again. The high priest becomes the go-between. And, and just like Moses, that points us straight to Christ. Points us straight to Christ. In the New Testament, Jesus is called our great high priest over and over again. Fifteen times in the book of Hebrews alone, he's called the high priest. Our high priest. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He came from heaven to earth to display God's glory to mankind. 
But also, just like the high priest, Jesus represents us before God. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now in heaven, in the throne room, in the holy of holies. Not just once a year, but now, continuously, at the Father's right hand, advocating and interceding for us. I mean, think of the ephod. He has the the names of his people. He has the names of us on his shoulders, bearing our guilt. I think of the breast piece. He has the names of his people on his breast, close to his heart, written in valuable stones. I mean, it's just amazing. Jesus is our go-between. I mean, there's so much more I could say about this, and we've spent sermon after sermon after sermon. We just don't have time today. I'm not going to preach to midnight tonight. But I, let me just end by saying this as we, we come to a close here. The, the tabernacle just pointed God's people to Jesus. It pointed the Israelites in the Old Testament straight to Jesus. It pointed to the grace of God found in Jesus, the seed of the woman to come that was promised in Genesis. It taught them what to look for. It taught them who to look for in the future. The sacrifices on the bronze altar in the courtyard pointed to Jesus' sacrifice. The, the lampstand in the holy place pointed to Jesus as our life and light that shines. He shines on his people, on God's people. He's the only way to salvation. The mercy seat between the law of God and the throne of God points to Jesus as our mercy seat, where mercy is seated, is found, the location. The garments of the high priest point to Jesus' heavenly nature as he leaves heaven and comes to earth and then leaves earth and represents us before God in heaven. And there's so much more I can say about this. This tabernacle is just this amazing object lesson. Just teaching God's people what to look for, that our only hope would be the seed that is coming, the seed of the woman. Our only hope is Jesus. Let me end by saying this because... Tabernacle, obviously, I think at this point, everyone, we've seen it, right? I mean, obviously pointed Israel forward to Jesus. I mean, Moses himself, right? Just the life of Moses pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And and this leads to a question, I think is a question many of us have, have asked. How did Israel miss it? How do they not see the symbolism when Jesus came and go, that's it? I mean, think about this. How did the priests miss it? The priests who worked in the tabernacle and saw the, the lampstand and the table, the, the priests who, who worked in the temple, how do they miss all the symbolism? Well, turn to one last place with, with me. It's Acts 6, verse 7. Because I think sometimes when we go through this and we see Christ in almost everything, we go, are, you, you ask the question, like, if Israel missed it, are we just reading Christ back into the Old Testament that's not there? And I don't think that's the case. Look at Acts 6, verse 7. It says this. And the word of God continued to increase. Let me just stop there. The word of God at this point was not the New Testament. It's the Old Testament. It 
was when the apostles spoke, that was the word of God. But if you look at all the sermons of the apostles, they preached the Old Testament. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly where? In Jerusalem. And a great many, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Listen, the first church that we talked about last week, the, the 3,000 that became 6,000, that, that here is just too, number to, too big of a number to count. I mean, just thousands of people, they were all Jews. The gospel at this point has not gone out to the Gentiles. They were all Jews, and that's because the Jews recognized the symbolism. Why do you think 3,000 people were saved like that? Don't get me wrong, it, it was partly a, a movement of the Spirit, but it was 3,000 people that knew the tabernacle, that understood the Old Testament, that knew the law, and it clicked for them. It all pointed to him. It cut right to their hearts. Many Jews recognized the symbolism. They understood the Old Testament. It was after Jesus' resurrection that many Jews recognized clearly who he was through the symbolism, through, through the scripture, through the word of God, through the law. It all pointed to him. Listen, the Old Testament didn't fail. The law didn't fail. The tabernacle didn't fail. It accomplished its purpose as a large remnant was saved. Many Jews got it. Therefore, a great number of them became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Dear God, our Lord, our Father, Lord, I, I thank you for your creativity. <laughs> that your word is not boring to read. As we, as we study the, the garments that Aaron wore, and we see Jesus and how you were teaching the Israelites of the mediator to come, Lord. As we look at the tabernacle and see all the symbolism, just how creative and beautiful and perfect your word truly is, Lord. God, I pray that we leave today just in awe awe of you, awe of your grace, and awe of the seed of the woman who came, your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. Awe and how perfect your word just connects to each other, Lord. God, I pray that we leave today just in worship of you and your son's name.